Hi, this is Anita Pointer of the Pointer Sisters, and you're listening to Neil Jones Inside Your Head. I'm all out of love. I'm so lost without you. I know you were right. Believing for so Welcome to Inside Your Head. This is Nasty Neil, and I'm joined by Lord Graham Russell of the legendary band Air Supply. It's very cool to talk with you. Uh, uh, great to be with you too, Neil. Thank you for persevering with me this morning. Oh, no worries. No worries. Uh, it's a whole new world where you can talk to people across the uh, across the, the country, across the world here online. It is amazing. It, it, it's still baffling to me how it works. I have no idea how it works, but I know it. I only know that it does. Yeah, especially right now where a lot of people can't, you know, uh, get into contact with people. It's, it's good to have this. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It's, I think it's brought a lot of people out of the shadows because they've had to learn how to do it. Otherwise, they don't keep in touch, you know. So 45th year of air supply. Yep, 45 years and counting. We're going on into our 46 soon. But yeah, it's a long time, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty amazing. And so what, when I, you know, read that, I always think, like, what's the age range of, of the fans? Because I would assume it's some people that's been with you since the beginning and yeah. uh, people born after, you know, you started. It's, it's, the demographic is rather large. It's, we get a lot of kids, too, even 10, 12-year-olds, you know, simply because they, they hear the music because their parents or their grandparents play it all the time. And... Uh, and it's all, you know, we always have songs in movies, so it kind of transcends generations, which is good for us. But, you know, we get a lot of uh, older people too, mature people, even people my age. And uh, we get everybody, you know, because the music isn't really a, a certain age group, you know. I mean, we, a lot of our songs are very romantic songs, big epic ballads, which uh, a lot of people like, even older people, younger people like them too, you know. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> when you guys started, you know, 45 years ago, because uh, I was reading a, an interview you did where you said you still get goosebumps when you play like your songs, because it's a, a one specifically one, because it was about people think it's a romantic song, but it was really about uh, how people didn't accept the band at the time. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, when we first began, uh, we had a, a lot of trouble uh, being being liked for who we are, for who we were. The thing, the thing is this, we, you know, Russell and I were in Superstar for almost two years. And when we came out, we had a hit record. We put a record out. So the record was out before the band was. Normally, it's, right. the, other way, it's the other way around. So yeah. people liked the song, but they didn't know who we were. And normally, it's, there's a band that's been around for a long time. Then they put a record out. They go, oh, I know that band. So it was reversed for us. So it took us a while to to get people to realize that uh, that's us, that's our record, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, what's that like, you know, your first record being such a success? Like, because uh, I don't, as far as I know, I don't think any of you guys, either of you fall, fell into any, like, you know, the pitfalls of, 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 you know, what people think of as rock stars. Right. Well, we didn't, no. Well, but a couple of reasons. First of all, 
uh, we were a little older when we first achieved any success in Australia. I mean, I was 20, I was 26 and Russell was 27. Normally for a young artist, that's kind of old, you know. I mean, nowadays there are singers that are 15, 16 years old, they're achieving success. But in those days, uh, it was usually around 20, 21, all the young bands, but we were a little older, so we were a little more, a little wiser, I hope. But uh, it was it was bizarre, you know, we were in Superstar, we came out, and the next week, I mean, our, our first single just went straight, to, in Australia went straight to number one, and nobody knew who we were. Uh, so it was a, a strange dichotomy, you know, we were there with a hit record, <laughs> and I remember people used to, if I was on a, a bus or something, the, the track would come on or somebody would be playing it, and they go, wow, what a great song. And it, it was our record, you know, and I, I would say, yeah, that's, that's it, Supply. They go, yeah, who's that? I say, oh, I don't know, you know. So it was, <laughs> it was rather bizarre, but we had to get used to it quickly. So our job was to get people to not only know the, the song, but to know who we were too, you know. Mm -hmm. So the, when you talk about that, like how, how do you go about doing that? Through your music or? Well, you, you have to, we have to get in the trenches and we did a lot of shows in Australia. Unfortunately, at that point, having a hit record, we were able to get some nice uh, venues, nice shows, you know. We never made a lot of money at it because you didn't in Australia in those days, but at least we went in the trenches and we did all the pubs in Australia. because the, Most of the venues, certainly then in Australia, in you know, 75, 76, were all pubs. And they were serious pubs. They were big venues and they were rough and tumble, you know. Uh, and even the women were, you know, were very, um, what's the word? They, they'd get into a fight in a heartbeat, you know, with, with anyone. Right. <laughs> uh, they had great character and they were great people. And uh, they just wanted to go out and uh, drink a lot of beer and listen to a band, which was us. So we were able to get uh, gigs easily enough, but they were rock and roll gigs. And here we were with this big ballad, you know, and in a climate of ACDC and uh, Midnight Oil, you know, and we actually played with ACDC a few times as an opening act. And the music couldn't have been different we had this big ballad and we were these guys wearing these white suits, you know, and then uh, and, uh, here comes ACDC just blowing the roof off everything. And they were incredible in those days. I mean, they always were, but, uh, yeah. but we kind of got thrown to the lions very quickly and, and we had to survive. We had to, you know, just, just do it because we had a big record and we said, well, we need to let people know who we are now and which we did but it took a long time you know so it was done backwards for us opening for like uh <clears throat> big name bands or mm. artists you know before you're established yeah uh, what's that first of all what's that experience like and also what do you learn from that well the experience for us certainly was god we're gonna get killed out here you know all right and, and we did, we got killed, but we didn't buckle under. We just said, okay, we've got to do it. We, this is who we are. We've got a hit record. Uh, they don't know who we are. We're going to go out there and sing a lot of ballads. And, and they don't know, they only know that one song. We're going to get murdered. And they all came to, they're all coming to see another artist. 
it was ACDC or the Angels or um, Midnight Oil. And uh, we used to be backstage going, oh my God, I'm, I'm dreading going out there. Because we'd get bottles thrown at us and uh, cans and, and stuff like that. And, and like, boo, get off. Uh, because they were a hardcore rock and roll crowd, you know. Mm -hmm. But we didn't buckle, as I said. We just said, okay, we're going to do our stuff. And the more we got heckled, the more we dug in and we wouldn't give up, you know. Yeah. Conse consequently, we're here today, 45 years yeah. later. Well, I'll say you guys still do a lot of shows, you know, w when shows can be, be done again. Yeah. Uh, do you think those early days, uh, you know, that kept you guys doing so many shows and that's what, what led to you guys still doing so many shows today? I do, because it gave us great character. Plus, at the same time, we, the band was getting good, you know. Sometimes we would do three gigs a night because in Australia you had to do that to make a decent living. You had to go to one pub, uh, then break down after you do an hour set or an hour and a half set, go to another one, do the same thing, and go to a third one quite often just to make ends meet. Uh, so you wouldn't, you'd be done about two in the morning, but that gave us, uh, it made the band really tight. And we got into that rock and roll stream, if you like. We, be, you know, we obviously began to know all the bands, and we became really good uh, friends. There's, there was a great camaraderie in those days, you know, because all the bands were they were driving all night, you know, interstate and vast distances, and just to survive. So everybody was uh, was uh, supporting everybody else, and it, it was a great time. It was really hard work, but. At the same time, we were learning our craft. We were learning what's going on. And then when, of course, when we, when we were open for Rod in Australia, Rod Stewart, we were ready for it. And we'd done all the, a lot of the work and the band was pretty tight, you know. Yeah. Later on, did you, would you watch the opening bands for, for Air Supply? Yeah, I always watch them, yeah. And I always have a lot of... Uh, support for them you know because it's a tough tough uh place you've got to you've got to get out there you know to a crowd that doesn't want to see you, you right. know, if you're an opening act i mean when we opened for rod even in the us they had no idea who we were we didn't have a hit record we were just this band from australia that nobody wanted to see um but you know that's part of, of growing and learning your your art and your craft and you have to learn it i think a lot of bands buckle under at that point and they say god i've, I've had enough of this i'm going to get a real job but you know it's like the uh, many are called but few are chosen you know and um, but we had no choice we had to keep doing it because we had no skills in any other profession at all plus we we wanted to do this we felt we were you know, not the chosen one, but we felt we had something to offer if we were given the right platform. But we had to earn that platform, and it took a long time, you know. Yeah. I think when we arrived in 1980 er, around the world, and certainly in America, people thought, oh, it's an overnight success, but it really wasn't. We'd, we'd been in the trenches, and, you know, we had no money or anything. And uh, so we were very lucky when that happened. I'm very happy about it, too. Yeah. <laughs> You said many times, you know, even here that, you know, for you, like performing live is the best part. But uh, during the 80s, when MTV starts to rise, well, what's yeah. that like, the rise of, you know, have to do music videos? Well, yeah, you have to kind of follow trends. 
uh, we've never really been a, a video band, you know. In fact, I never really enjoyed making them. Um, I, I don't know why. I, I know a lot of bands are like that too. Uh, I mean, like for instance, Duran Duran, their whole career was formulated on all those great videos. And they, the great thing was they had great songs and the videos were fantastic. So they created their whole career around that. But for us, it was more the music, it was more the songs. Uh, so we didn't really have another vehicle. But with MTV, everything changed, you know. Um, in fact, MTV never played us in our whole career. VH1 oh, really? Did. Oh, okay. Yeah. Can you believe that? Uh, VH1 did, which was their kind of softer offshoot, if you like. Um, they played us, but the, uh, MTV didn't. I used to watch it all the time, but it gave a lot of artists a great career. That uh, and you didn't have to play. A lot of them didn't have to play live. They just made a great video. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, you said you know it's about the the music, about the song. So uh, yeah. you write you you've written all the songs, I think, for Yeah. Right? Most of them, yeah. There's a couple I didn't write, but yeah. Yeah. Well, what's that process like to write a song, especially uh, when you know, you know, you have the same singer for, for the songs? Do you ever, like, uh, do you write out the lyrics and then you think, like, how he's going to sing them? Do they ever change, you know, th uh, depending on right. how you envision him uh, performing them? Well, uh, not really. The thing is, you know, I've always written songs, even before Russell and I met, in Superstar, I'd written probably about 500 songs at that point. Uh, so it's, it's something I've always done, even, you know, I started writing songs when I was 11, uh, and I had no idea what I was doing, uh, or why I was doing it. And so after all this time, I've kind of got used to it, but it's something I do every day, and I'm always thinking about it. But if I do come up with a new song, which I do often, I don't really think of Russell's voice. I just write the song first. Then afterwards, I, I go, oh, okay, it's about this. And uh, I, then I'll think, uh, will Russell like that? Uh, or should I change the lyrics? Or, you know, usually he's, he's okay with it. Uh, in fact, almost always he's okay with it. But the thing is, with having Russell as the singer, it makes it kind of easy for me, if you like, because... He's always there and he doesn't get involved in other aspects of the, our career. He just wants to sing, so, which gives me uh, a, a wide canvas to do whatever I want. You know, sometimes it's a, usually it's a big epic ballad, but also there's a lot of rock and roll stuff in there, you know, so I can yeah. really do whatever I want. You know, it's great. Now, I know you write a lot of poetry, too. Uh, what's, the what's the difference between writing poetry and, and music? And not just technically, but, you know, just... Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a different animal, for me at least, you know. I, uh, writing poetry is, is... It's not that it's more difficult than song, a song. It's a different space to get into. I mean, with a song, if I sit down at a piano and want to write a song, I'll start playing a piano or the guitar, and I know that something's going to happen. I'm going to come up with something within a few minutes that's going to be okay, it's going to be cool. And I either grab onto it and, and take it to fruition or I go, no, that's not going anywhere and I'll, and I'll, and I'll go somewhere else. But with, uh, with poetry, it's a more sedate experience. I have to be really relaxed and I have to let that space come over me. Uh, like, for instance, you can't write uh, beautiful lines of prose if you're if you're kind of stressed out or you're in a hurry uh, 
so that's the difference between that and songs. Plus, you know, with the song, you have the music and you've got the lyrics and they both support each other. But with poetry, you have to get everything across in just a few lines and it has to be uh, complete. And that's, uh, it's not that it's difficult, it's just the space to get into the access is more limited. Yeah, no. is one more personal than the other? It is. I think the poetry is more personal to the author than, than a song, simply because a song, you have other people come in playing different instruments usually, and a singer, of course. Uh, so they bring their, their part into the song. But with a, a poem, it's pretty much just the author. And so you're really bearing your soul to someone. And there's no, uh, there's no escaping it. You can't say, oh, I didn't mean that. Because whatever you say is what is what you mean, and uh, but at the same time, I think it, a, a poetry is much more rewarding because it's a, it's a great feeling after you've written, for instance, say three or four verses of something, and even if they're short, because and you've got across that feeling, uh, that universal feeling that you were trying to get across, and if you actually are successful at that, it's a wonderful feeling. It really is. I'm sure, you know, for people in other professions like doctors or lawyers or even mechanics, when they finish something that's really cool, they go, oh, wow, it's a feeling of accomplishment, you know, which yeah. is a beautiful thing in any profession. Yeah. Do you have any examples of a, of a poem? Oh, absolutely. Would you like to hear one? I would love to. That's very kind of you to ask. I mean, I love reading poetry. <laughs> this, is a, this is a poem called Am I?, and uh, it's, it's really about uh, pausing for a moment and thinking about life and, and the universe and everything and wondering what your part is in it. And when, sometimes when you stop and, and think about the real simple things in life, you realize that you are actually attached to it. You know, like for instance, when you see a beautiful sunrise or a sunset, you become attached to it and it becomes a part of you. And that's why you can write about what you see and why so many people write it differently because it comes from a different place. So this is a moment where I just stopped and I, I was wondering if I'm a part of everything that I'm looking at. And at this particular time, I thought I was. And then it goes back to its source, which is at the end. But uh, this is called Am I? Am I the pebble lying in the stream? or the water freed from melting snow? Am I a dreamer's sleeping dream that has no home, nowhere to go? Am I a thought to build the bridge between two points of view? I am at least one thing I know, a solitary monument that always longs for you. Am I the quiver of a desert flower or the roots that lie in sacred ground? Am I trapped in my ivory tower until the day I knock it down? Am I the curious dragonfly of orange and of blue? I am all things of that I'm sure, but nothing less and nothing more than one that longs for you. That's very nice. So you can, I'm sure you can get where, where, I, where I'm trying to go with it. You know, it, it's just an expression of suddenly feeling you're a part of everything around you. And, and that's a great feeling, you know.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very nice. And, um, you know, uh, writing something like that or, or the music, uh, when you perform it then later, like, cause like if you were, since you got your bands been together for 45 years, yeah. when you perform it today, you're a different person than you were when you wrote it. You know what I'm saying? Correct. So, yeah. So when you perform it, um, does that take you back to kind of the mindset of, of that time or do you, does, does the performance song ever change depending on like what kind of person you are today? It, it does change. Yeah. And you know, the, the, once you've written a song, it, it's an, a, a thing, it, it's alive and it becomes like a seed. But then when you want to perform it, at whatever time, even if it's later on, it does change because everybody's coming in and bringing their parts. And so you have to be prepared to let it go. And sometimes in the studio, when people start playing, uh, you, you hope it's going to be a certain way, but then it starts to move, which is, it's got to evolve, you know, which is inevitable. And sometimes it's a little sad to see it evolve. Uh, but you have to be prepared to let it go. It's kind of like children, you know, they're babies, they're born, they're babies and they grow up and everything's beautiful. Then there comes a time when they want to leave home. So you have to let them go and they have to become what you once were. So that's a difficult thing, but I'm used to it now and I'm used to seeing it change and seeing my perspective on it change. Like if we've been playing a song, a lot of songs, a lot of the big hits, We've played for a long time, uh, but I still enjoy playing them because of that, because they're different every night. Uh, like the guitar player may play a different solo in, in the middle, or I may try and sing it differently uh, because I'm a different person, you know. Um, I mean, if, if I came out with Lost in Love Now as a new song, I don't think in the climate we are in now that it would be so successful because it's a different kind of song. You know, now there was, there's a lot of drum machines and a lot of rap and techno and everything, which is cool. But uh, I mean, who knows, you know, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever do live uh, poetry readings? Um, you know, I, I read one at every show we do in the the middle. I, I, there's a moment where I get five minutes and, uh, I recite a poem and then I'll play, sing a song, usually on my own with guitar or something. Uh, so it's a little uh, a moment f- for a, a poetry reading. And at first, I've done it for years. And at first I thought, wow, I can't really do that. But Russell was the one, he said, you know, you should really recite a poem. And I thought, well, I'm here in the middle of a rock and roll show and I'm going to stop and I'm going to read a poem. Yeah. And it, it was like in the early days when we first began, when we spoke about a few minutes ago, I, I said to myself, God, I'm going to get murdered. You know, everybody's <laughs> going to go to the bathroom and, um, and they're going to start mumbling. But you know what? It, it's completely the opposite. And it really surprised me. You can hear a pin drop because I think, I mean, I keep everything, all my poems are simple anyway, but it's dead quiet and, I'm, and it, it's a really a lovely moment that I really enjoy now. And I think people grab hold of that moment and they must think, oh, this is really cool. It's a different thing because I don't think anybody else does it. I know Lennon Cohen used to do it, but sadly he's gone. So I don't know other people that do that, especially in a rock and roll band, just stop everything. Everybody leaves the stage and I recite a poem. Uh, but I never want it to be about me. I'm, I don't have that kind of ego. It, it's not about me. It's about the, the moment and the, and the words, you know. 
Yeah. And if, I, if I could do it off stage, I would do it off stage, but Russell <laughs> wouldn't let me do that. But yeah. it's a nice moment, and I think it adds to the evening because it's so different, you know. Yeah, I think it was like an, an inti- a more intimate moment with the audience. It is, and there are those uh, intimate people, in the, uh, certainly in our audience, uh, that are there. And without fail, when we leave the building, there are usually people outside, usually the hardcore fans, and they always mention the poem. Or some guy or a lady may, may come up, you know, the next morning in a coffee shop if they see someone, and they'll go, I was at your show last night, and they'll say, I loved your poem. So that fills me with uh, a great feeling that uh, it's okay to do that, you know, even though it it's, was terrifying the first few times. But yeah. now it, it's okay because there are different kind of people and there are some people that think like me that get kind of deep and drift off. Uh, so there are those people there and this is for them, but everyone enjoys it, which really surprised me initially. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting too that, you know, you guys, you do so many concerts and then something like that would be a terrifying to you. You know, doing the, the poem. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, it really was because, you know, I thought, well, they're not going to enjoy this. They're going to, they want, they came to hear Lost in Love and all that, right. et cetera. But, you know, I think the change is something that they enjoy. And plus our audience, uh, they come for a reason. And it, it's actually not just to hear the big hits. Uh, they come for several reasons. I think one of the reasons is they may come is to see that we're still around, you know, uh, and and probably say, oh, I remember those guys. I'm going to check them out. And then they're very surprised because the show's a really good show. It's a rock and roll show. But th- that part, the, the poetry part, is, is good. And it's, uh, it gives me a lot of confidence that it's okay to write these really deep phrases and deep words. But But when I do recite it, I really mean it, you know, and I'm, I engage them. And I'm a great believer in if you're going to do something, put everything into it, you know. So I do that. And when, when you do that in whatever thing you may be doing, it engages people and people take notice, you know. And it, you could be a mechanic or whatever. But if you really engage, something happens, you know. Yeah. Uh, a little different from that is when asked about the lost in love experience because you guys, you know, do a lot of the songs. Uh, yeah. With a symphony, uh, yeah. what was that experience like? Because I would assume that really changes the feeling of the, of the music. Oh, it did. I've always wanted to do an orchestral album, and I've always felt that our music is very much geared for that. I mean, we've had songs, we, we've had orchestras on songs in the studio on regular normal albums, but I wanted to do a live one. And uh, this opportunity came up with the Prague Symphony, and uh, who were regarded as one of the greatest orchestras in Europe. And uh, it came up, and I thought, wow, I'd really like to do that. And I got hold of them, and they said, yeah, we'd love to do that. So it happened, and it took like uh, three days of recording. Uh, but the great thing was, you know, it was in Prague, obviously. And well, first of all, I'd never been there before, but the studio we used was the same the soundstage for Lawrence of Arabia, where they recorded that. Oh, wow. Yeah, a lot of other incredible uh, soundtracks from the 60s where these great uh, conductors and composers worked. And that was a great thrill. But then the sound in that room was just something else. It was amazing. So it, it was 
it was like off my bucket list, you know, I wanted to do that. And I wanted the album to sound really good and, I, and I'm very proud of it. Uh, it's very string heavy, but, but I love that. I'm always telling our sound engineer at the front and I come and check, you know, I say, are the strings loud? And he'll go, yeah, they're loud. And I'll say, no, they're not. They need to be super loud. <laughs> I just love, they're so passionate, you know, I just love, love that feeling. I love orchestras. Yeah, it sounded great. I listened to it uh, last night. Oh, far out. Oh, thank yeah, you. That's great. I loved it. Yeah. And uh, when I announce you're on, and some people ask some questions, we'll just ask a couple because there's too many to ask. But oh, okay. uh, Mike, Michael J. Epstein uh, wants to know, uh, I'm actually curious how they chose their songs. I'm a big Jim Steinman fan, and I wonder mm -hmm. if they were just presented songs to choose from by the label. Um, well, the Steinman song came through our uh, – a record executive Clive Davis, who is very is legendary, and in fact, I spoke to Clive the last couple of days. He called me out of the blue because um, we're doing a, a live show of his next yeah. week. Um, but he had that song. He he, he knew Steinman, of course, and Steinman had great success with Meat Love. I mean, incredible songs, and he played it for us, and he said. Uh, you know, would you be interested in doing this? And at that point, we really weren't. Uh, but then, you know, I thought, well, Russell was into it, and I thought, it's a different sound for us. Uh, is that going to be okay? And Russell said, yeah, it's going to be great, which it was. Uh, I, I've always been a fan of Steinman, of his, the way he records. And we got a chance to go in there with him, and we, uh, we used the E Street Band. It was the band. Oh, wow. Yeah, and Jim was there because he produced the track, obviously, and he was fabulous. And Russell sang it in one take, and I remember he sang it, and J Jim looked at us and he said, "Wow, that was great." And I said, "Yeah, I know." And he said, "I think that's it." I said, "Yeah, I think you're right." <laughs> and that because Russell used to sing one takes all the time, the one that you love, all I love is all one take. So that was a great experience working with those great musicians. And then, of course, you know, Jim had that song, which only got to number two because he had the number one song, too, with Bonnie Tyler. So we, it was a great move, and it, but it really, the credit goes to Jim and to Clyde Davis for that, you know. But it, great song, and it's a huge song that went live, of course, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I want to ask one last question, too, is because uh, you talk a lot about, you know, the Beatles being your big inspiration. Yeah. Um, was there one particular song or was it really just like the whole package of the Beatles? It's really the whole package, because when I first heard the Beatles, uh, it was in 1963. And somebody at school said, have you heard this band, the Beatles? I said, no. And they said, go and check them out. And they had a BBC TV show on a Tuesday afternoon at five o'clock and called Pop Go The Beatles, and they sang live in London in the studio. They'd sing three, new, three songs. So I'd dash home from school, and I'd listen, and I was just enthralled. Just the sound uh, and the way they spoke, uh, because where I come from in Nottingham, you know, it's a, it's a different accent than the Liverpool, but uh, the Liverpool is more pronounced. And I, used to, and I remember thinking, oh, wow, you know, just because you have a, a, an English accent, it's a, it can be cool. You know, instead of, oh, there's those guys from Liverpool. Uh, but they just sounded so good, and I got into them heavily, simply because they were great songs. I mean, I have several favorite. My favorite Beatles song is If I Fell from A Hard Day's Night. 
which is so beautiful and simple. But I just got into them because I, I think they were the greatest songwriters ever. And, you know, we only have uh, McCartney left now, and he's just incredible. Uh, so it was great. I felt very fortunate growing up during the Beatles' time from the, when I started to take notice in 63. And, of course, they stopped performing in 66, so they were only a lot, uh, around playing live for three years. But I did get to see them in 1964. I saw them at a cinema, um, and it just changed everything for me. It changed my whole life, you know. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Well, I appreciate you uh, doing this with me. Taking oh, the time. pleasure. Thank yeah. you so much, Neil. It's been, I've enjoyed it very, very much. Thank you. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it as well. And happy uh, birthday this week. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was yeah. last Thursday. Yeah, I finally made it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you do anything cool for the 70th birthday? Well, I had all kinds of plans. I was going to, originally, I was going to maybe go to England or do a few things. But in the end, you know, I stayed home and I was very happy uh, just to stay home because, yeah. of, you know, the virus and everything was a bit dangerous. And, and I was very happy to do that. And in the end, I was glad. You know, I did my little thing with myself uh, because it was a big birthday. I turned 70 yeah. and, and I thought, oh, okay, it's not that bad. So, but now let's move on and carry on with life. So <laughs> yeah. I had a beautiful day, but thanks for asking. Yeah, you're welcome. And uh, have a good, have a good rest of the day. And you too. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Thanks. Bye.
so 